Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the Bank Treasure Newsletter podcast. With me today is a gentleman who I've interacted with over many, many years in the bank space, Sam Theodore, currently a consultant with the Scope Group, a veteran bank analyst, rating agency analyst for many years of large European institutions. You know, Sam, I really think given all the things that we've seen in March, and given the stuff that you've been writing about, I think you might have some pretty good insights about what people should be thinking about as we proceed this year and next and think about some of the uncertainties ahead. So Sam, before we do that, though, just give a little brief introduction, what you're doing and where you are at and some of the things that you've done over your career first. Ethan, nice for you to invite me. I'm happy to be in your podcast. So basically, I've been covering banking sector as an analyst, as a credit analyst for three decades and a half. I was for almost 20 years with Moody's, including for many years, the head of European bank ratings. Then I was for several years, a bank regulator in the UK and at the European Banking Authority. And lately I've been working with the smaller German rating agency Scope, and I was heading the bank rating group there. I set it up. And then this stage, uh, I gave up my rating boots for several years now, and I just cover the sector from a distance as a consultant, and I look at general trends, and I try to look at angles which are not usually covered by uh, too many people in the market, and try to see whether there are some things we can learn from those for the future. And yeah, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm happy to be here and uh, chat about all these things, Ethan. So, you know, Sam, one of the things I saw you have on the website, you were talking about one of the things that rating analysts need to think about are the exogenous events, the things that they don't see coming generally in the model. So I have this poll question that I've been running around with and asking many banks that I've been meeting with what they think. And the poll question goes like this. The next bank crisis will come from the direction of asset quality, like commercial real estate. It will be uh, an interest rate risk one. Climate change is, an, is a third one that I put in there that most people raise an eyebrow with me, but I can actually point to an institution I know of whose parent company was exposed to uh, the Maui fires and raised questions about source of strength. We have uh, a fourth choice was cyber risk and that's been very interesting to me i i've had someone explain to me that today 95 percent of all the firewalls that you see in these companies are ineffective because of the encryption of viruses very scary stuff and a fifth choice i offered was sovereign risk which i recall just recently was an issue in the financial crisis so I saw what you wrote and I thought, ah, oh, I got to hear what you think about this. Most people say interest rate risk because it's the most recent one. I still honestly believe asset quality is probably the biggest issue I need to worry about. Am I wrong? Well, the thing is that, Ethan, uh, usually analysts and market observers, they usually tend to fight last war's battles. So after the great financial crisis, you have everybody saying, yeah, in the next banking crisis, 
asset quality because banks don't provision enough and they don't have enough capital. And, and again, my focus is mostly on Europe. I'm less into US banks, but from what I understand, mostly about large banks, the situation is not that bad at all there. So right now you have banks with high levels of capital, with uh, decent levels of provisions, with historically low levels of non-performing loans. And everybody says asset quality is going to get worse because of commercial real estate. Again, I'm talking about Europe, all the way from Sweden down to Spain. And I don't think so. Why? Because first of all, the cohort of loans, including real estate loans in place in banks' balance sheets are nearly all put in place after the GFC, when the underwriting criteria tightened considerably. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the level of public collateral is substantial compared to what it used to be before the GFC. So yes, provisions are going to go up because non-performance are going to go up a little bit, but still up not to a level which would trigger a crisis. And also banks by and large, with extremely few exceptions, have sufficient regulatory capital and excess capital on Don't top of that. actually that the IFRS, I forgot the version of CECL in Europe, IFRS 9, I think, it yeah. kind of solved this problem about surprises in provisions and reserves? Yeah, because you have expected the yeah, provisions for expected losses. But I think that it's not so much the uh, accounting regulation, the accounting rules. It's more technology, really, which changes the game. Hmm. I'm old enough to remember the massive banking crisis of the late 80s, early 90s, which was triggered by the SNL crisis in the US and blew up in Europe as a huge, a mega a banking crisis. Mm-hmm. And that was, was actually worse than uh, the GFC, if you look at it from a historical perspective. And the main reason was that banks were totally underprovisioned at the time, and they didn't have any way to look at the true risk of their loan portfolio. Why is that? Because the technology was not there. So everything was pretty much done manually. Then GFC was a better way because you had some technology. And now with everything you have, technology takes care of it and uh, it can forecast credit losses much better than it was the case in the past. I'm looking at all these new uh, ways of lending, the non-bank lending, all these platforms, uh, peer-to-peer and balance sheet lending from platforms. And all these things driven increasingly by artificial intelligence, which does a lot of things, including assigning credit ratings. So things are much more, conceptually speaking, they're much more included in a broader technology model. So it's more difficult to squeak by. On top of it, you have, the again, the new regulations, which say wouldn't have big concentrations, all these things. So I think that I'm not going to expect a serious crisis from asset quality. I'm going to expect this bank- Could I ask you something? It's very nice to say that about technology. I agree with you. Technology makes the job easier, but it's still dependent upon the information that gets entered. Do you think that, well, first of all, let me just confirm this. In the States, I would say it's still office, for example, the number one concern, 40%, 50% documents. In the cities, like the major cities, it's still very bad. And, you know, a lot of these leases take a while before they run off. But there's a point, a critical point, when some of the valuations of these loans will finally come due and be marked down. And when they are, when that happens, you have a whole bunch of asset quality that 
gets worse. Now, I, I agree with you, we're, we're looking at stuff, but I worry that some of the inputs into the models that we're looking at relying on doesn't really capture the data because humans don't really acknowledge the problem. Think about a uh, office manager. My people come into work at my office, say two days out of the week, really everybody's there. And the rest of the time, it's sort of skeletal. Now I have five days a week. That's the model I had when I signed this lease. And it's like, oh, I need the space for those two days. But is that really true? You know, I hear a message, and again, maybe this is not what's going on in Europe, but I hear a message in the States that every bank is going to get more efficient about capital. I'm gonna need more capital. Cost of capital is gonna go up. Allocation of capital is gonna get more refined. So as I think about that, and I'm the CEO of a bank, don't I need to think about, yeah, okay, my head counts the biggest number one cost, but don't I also have to think about, hey, do I really need all this office space? And when that happens, isn't there a critical moment where there could be a step functional change in the value of this stuff that we didn't really think about? Isn't that yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, everything makes a lot of sense. You, again, the only thing is that uh, if you look at the value of the loan or the lease compared to the collateral, it's really extremely conservative. And oh, the sure. good case is Sweden, actually, in Europe. Sweden was a market where one year, one year and a half ago, everybody expected a, a banking collapse, not me. Because, you know, you look at the over collateral that the Swedish banks were making on their commercial, and I'm not talking residential. Residential is not an issue, I think. I'm talking commercial. And this crisis, this collapse didn't happen. And now the market, the real estate market in Sweden is stabilizing at the lower level, but stabilizing nonetheless. And Germany is another market where people were concerned, but I don't think they should be overly concerned. Again, you will have this bank or that bank, which will run into trouble at some point, perhaps. But from there to go into a systemic crisis, I'm convinced that's not going to be the case. What about the fact that a lot of lot of loans really over the last 15 plus years have been written at relatively historically very low interest rates, not necessarily always at zero, but just generally low. How much do you think the idea that things are conservatively valued holds up under a completely new regime? If we're not just higher for longer, but maybe this is the base rate, which is my point. This is the actual normal interest rate. Yeah, the, the thing is that, I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, interest rates are never going to go back to what they were two, three years ago. The point is well, that- Well, we don't think so. I doubt, I very much doubt, at least not, you know, when I'm alive, but I don't know what's going to happen in 40 years. <laughs> but I'm talking about now, I don't think that's going to be the case, the zero interest rate uh, environment. But on the other hand, at least in Europe, you have a lot of state support. So you have caps on mortgage uh, rate increases in France, in other countries, things which I'm not sure if they exist in the US, but they do exist in Europe. So on the residential side, there's more protection both for, of course, on the asset quality side, there's less protection on the revenue side. So a, a bank, a French bank, for example, uh, rates are rising left and right. French banks cannot increase their uh, revenues because they cannot reprice their long-term fixed mortgages. And when they do, they have caps imposed by the government, which cannot push them uh, at high levels. 
So that means that the net interest margin, the endowment effect of higher net interest margin is less obvious for French banks than say for Spanish banks, which have variable rates. But again, this, this is a dialogue to be had on the revenue side, not on the asset quality side. On the asset quality side, I think that's another case. Commercial real estate is different. But again, for commercial real estate, I think provisions will go up, non-performing loans will go up, but not to a crisis level and not for all banks, because what we had like 15 years ago with GMCs, all banks, it was this uh, total uh, ripple effect across the entire banking system. That's not going to be the yeah, case. I, I, I don't think you're wrong about that, Sam. And I generally agree with you. I just, I've, what I take away from March of 2020, and again, here in the States, is I just don't know. You know, let's go to my next potential risk. What about interest rate risk? Do we have another interest rate risk, liquidity bank risk type issue? Well, I think that in Europe, uh, banks, I mean, uh, right after SVB uh, blow up, uh, I think the regulators in Europe ran scenarios and asked a lot of liquidity and funding data from banks. And the truth is that you don't have the same issues because basically what you had there with SVB was a concentration of non guaranteed non-insured depositors who walked away when the industry in which they are involved uh, was in, in trouble. We all tried to identify similar institutions in Europe, couldn't, they don't exist. So what happened with Credit Suisse was not that the depositors walked away, no. but the private banking custody funds, right. they walked away. Clients said, we don't like this bank. It's in the newspapers all the time. You guys take too many risks. You know, I know private bankers uh, in Credit Suisse at the time were totally hating their colleagues in investment banking said, because of you guys, my clients are walking away from me. Mm -hmm. So it was a very poisonous, toxic culture, in the, which obviously leads to a different discussion, but that's not typical for the average European Sam, bank. Sam, can I ask you something? How transparent is that to a public side investor? Which is what you're talking about, the private investors and the concerns they had. How well, much was I mean, that? Out there? I mean, I, I'll just say this. I, I mean, Credit Suisse. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I I hate to use this expression, but to me, it's been a dumpster fire for many many years. It's not a surprise I agree. I agree. that they yeah. failed. But I mean, how it much stuff didn't. like this is that you just talked about? How much is that apparent from their financial reporting? Well, it's not apparent at all, but this is anecdotal, basically, you know, and I suspect many investors in bank shares and in bank bonds talk to other people in the market. I mean, these things are known in Europe, but talking about uh, Credit Suisse being a dumpster fire for many years, I agree with you. But then so was Deutsche Bank mm -hmm. in perhaps a few years before. And guess what? Deutsche Bank at some point rebalanced itself. Right. And that was, again, because of a substantial internal management change. They put a retail banker at the top of Deutsche Bank. They gave him a few years and he managed to turn the bank around. They still have a so-so reputation in the market. But again, nobody's talking about Deutsche Bank as a bank, which is an outlier, which was the case several years ago. Okay. So interest rate risk, credit risk. What about climate change? Is that an no, exogenous that. event that you think about? Yeah, I mean, climate change, to be honest, uh, I think it's something that we all need to keep an eye on because everybody wants banks to keep an eye on that and to do something. 
it's difficult to see climate change being a, a trigger for a banking crisis short of having some kind of like a cataclysmic event, a biological cataclysmic event, like you know, an asteroid. You know, well, okay, fire. short of that, how about forest fires devastating yeah. economy to the point where it's so far knocked back on itself that... Uh... Yeah, but this is more like, let's say you have a medium-sized Italian bank, which a large exposure on the Italian littoral, mm -hmm. and there you have some flooding, and then, you know, a lot of borrowers go belly up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but again, this is not at the level of a banking crisis. This is at the level of one bank having problems with its portfolio. So I don't think for the short term, I think more when you talk about climate change, I see more risk in question marks about transition risk. Okay, what uh, is that? Mean? Not physical risk, transition risk. So when the government says you economies have to move to a new climate change proof model and banks have problems adjusting their portfolios to the, this new business model, which is currently the case, and that would be perhaps a risk, but again, not a risk at the level of a, of a crisis. So if you tell me, one bank which is not keeping pace with the others in changing the profile of its corporate lending away from oil and gas would be at a bigger risk than the banks which do change a lot. That I agree. But that in itself is not going to trigger a crisis. Now, cyber risk, you mentioned cyber risk. I totally agree with that's a huge risk. If you ask me, that's a top risk, which I see now in the industry. Is it the risk of a financial system being shut down, hacked, something like that? What yeah. What is, and the fact that it doesn't get back up right away and it causes a loss of confidence in the financial system? Yeah, in theory, in practice, it's probably, it's going to be difficult for that to see because uh, the governments are going to support the banks. You know, if Putin decides to hack the uh, German banking system, he'll try, he won't succeed, he'll try, but in the process, he'll create a lot of uncertainty among banking clients in Germany. So if I'm a credit analyst of a bank and now I have to worry about cyber risk, the thing you wrote about was it's hard to value. It's impossible to value. Absolutely. So what do I do? What do I do as, as a banking client or as a bank analyst? Bank analyst. Well, the thing is that banks, they communicate a lot on various risks. One area where they don't communicate much and they are encouraged not to communicate by, by policymakers is cyber risk. Mm -hmm. Because the less you share, the less you share with your potential enemies, basically, with the hackers of this world. But on the other hand, talking to banks they tell you, we have this, we have that, things are under control. But again, talk to, I saw a lot of polls of bank CEOs in the US, in Europe, they all say cyber risk is at the top of our concerns. Right. Cyber risk, not so much in terms of our systems not working. There's also risk, but they're not going to say our systems are not working. But cyber risk in terms of hacking from private and, and state you know, hostile. So cyber risk is an issue. We're not really sure how we should protect for it. You don't say... Well, if you think a bank is triple A, now it should really be single A just because of the potential of cyber risk. I don't think you can do that because you cannot put a metric on cyber risk. You cannot put a metric on climate, on cyber risk. On what about COVID. sovereign risk then? What do I do about that? So, you know, hey, the U.S. is still facing another shutdown. Then there's another going to be another debt ceiling issue. There's war in Europe. I'm, by the way, still living with the 
very seared memories of liking the RG banks in 2001 with the convertibility. So still remember. Yeah, but Argentina at the time, okay, was a collapsed sovereign. Yeah. You don't have that right now in Europe. So you cannot say Italy is going to collapse as a sovereign. It's not going to collapse as a sovereign. So I think the risk I'm more concerned about here is not really sovereign risk in the classical sense of the word, like, you know, Italy defaulting on its bonds. That's not going to happen. But I'm more concerned about geopolitical risk. And I'm not concerned about geopolitical risk in terms of something is going to happen tomorrow morning. But the more you look at this world, the more you see that the globalization and all these business models of the global banks were built on this globalization template. Globalization is going away, basically. And I don't think it's going to come back for at least a generation, if at all. Something that you didn't mention, that business model risk. So, for example, HSBC or Standard Chartered are two banks which have one foot in the UK, a small foot, and a larger foot in Asia or you know, other emerging mm -hmm. markets. So if imagine you have an event like China goes into Taiwan mm -hmm. one day and the whole thing collapses, the whole trust, global trust collapses, what's going to happen with this, this global business of these European banks, which derive a lot of money from international activities? Sure. I mean, so much stuff out there in Latin we, America. We, we just saw this with yeah. Russia. I mean, how much, right. how much assets can institutions pull out of Russia? at all and russia is a small drop in the bucket compared to china because you know banks went into russia but you know austrian banks and but if you look at china pretty much everybody it's not like in china is going to collapse far from it but the level of trust is going to disappear and that's not a way to do global banking mm -hmm. and that to me is a risk it's not a risk which is going to lead to a crisis but it's a risk which is going to lead to some force changing in business models which can lead to drop in revenues. Well, we've seen forced changes in business models every other year. I mean, it seems like banks change their business models like they change clothes. I mean, in the States here, or where we've adopted this new mantra for big banks today is the RWA diet, where I'm assessing risk versus return. Like, oh, okay, that sounds like a new concept to me, definitely. <laughs> is that so? Yeah, okay. Well, one thing which, uh makes me smile is uh, top bankers who refer to their banks as a, we have a fortress balance sheet. Mm. Very nice to hear that, but a bank is not made to have a fortress balance sheet. Fortress means defense, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to attack, you're supposed to contribute to economic growth in your domestic and international markets. Mm -hmm. So if you retrench, if you de-risk to the point of totally retrenching, you keep your fortress balance sheet, you don't play your role in the economy. Right, well, I think, by fortress balance sheet, at least here in the States, regulators intend that like through CCAR and stress testing and annual stress testing like that, you're, you're not just demonstrating that you can withstand the credit crisis, that you can continue to have ongoing operations and make loans and have the capital to do okay. that. Then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think that the institutions here in the States that in terms of the financial stability report just came out about a week or so ago. And in that report, that was a conclusion for regulators that the banks had that kind of capital strength. Interestingly enough, and I wanted to shift to this as well, was continued concerns around the money market funds. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. What do you have as an equivalent in, in shadow bank operations in Europe 
how much is that a risk that you should it's far far less so of a concern in europe it is a concern obviously of the, of the global scale but in europe the uh, credit markets and debt and deposit markets are much more intermediated by banks than in the us yes that's true uh, which means that you have money markets and you have a lot of even fintechs so you have a lot of fintechs most of them are part of larger banking groups so you have fewer independents compared to the us that's why fintechs and digital banks have a much more difficult way of being profitable in europe than they have in emerging markets uh, and even in the us which is still more underbanked than europe in western europe the degree of banking penetration is something like 95% to 99%. I think based on what I saw from some Fed data in, in, in the US, you, that's more like 75% if you exclude the unbanked and the underbanked. Uh, as I understand, in, in the US, banks are in the habit of kicking out customers for no reason. You cannot do that in Europe. Yeah, so I, I think generally you have to meet certain credit criteria to be yeah. a customer so that in terms of I mean in Europe short of being a money launderer or a, you know or a fraud you have the right to have a bank account right what their biggest problem is the cost of a banking account and there are, are services and efforts that are regularly underway to ensure access or incentivize access for the underserved and underbanked market and that number is actually the the FDIC publishes that I think every three or so years, if I'm not mistaken. And I thought the, there has been improvement, certainly since COVID. But if you measure this going back to the financial crisis, the underbanked has shrunk. I agree with you. It's something that's very important for the economy. You know, when I was following the Latin American banks, those guys there would always talk about the bankerization of their economy and how much that meant the banks had penetrated to the uh, lower echelons of the economy. And uh, that was always something to ask. So I, I agree with that. But just to conclude this, doesn't sound like you see any kind of crisis risk for banks in Europe. Do you think you saw the crisis that came in the States before it happened? I've been asking this question of people. In October of 2022, the Fed had been raising rates for about six months and rates had gone up to, I think, about 400 basis points by that point. Was there any point then that you said, oh, this could end very badly for these banks because their capital ratios are all going to be hit by the mark to market? To be honest, I didn't know much about SBB before SBB blew up. Right, of course. Have you ever seen of a financial institution with 70% of its balance sheet, of its assets, concentrated in AAA government-guaranteed securities fail ever. Would you have ever imagined a socially directed campaign to cause a bank run overnight of $40 billion of deposits overnight? No, but when these things happen, you can expect any outcome. So, you know, who expected Credit Suisse to fail overnight, basically? Nobody. Everybody said it's a weak bank, it's a stressed bank, but they're going to make it, including the supervisors of Credit Suisse, FINMA. Mm -hmm. And then when these supervisors up, here in the US didn't see it happening either. They were insiders. They never saw it happening. Yeah, because they follow, again, like the analysts that I mentioned earlier, 
you tend to fight last war's battles, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be a super, I was a supervisor. I mean, there's no fun to be a supervisor if you really want to look ahead and to try to anticipate the next crisis or the next blow up, because you have to tick boxes. And by the way, that's true also for rating agencies. If you go and you say to a rating committee, I have a hunch, this bank, yeah, the numbers are correct. They tell a good story, but I don't like what's happening there. I have a hunch or, you know, this is based on things which you cannot put numbers behind. Nobody's going to take your word. Mm -hmm. And the same, even more so for supervisors. You cannot go and raise the alarm for something which didn't happen, but you don't like a scenario, a negative scenario, which could happen or could not happen. And that's something which I think is going to haunt the industry for some time, because it's basically uh, maybe artificial intelligence would sort this out. But right now, if you have a scenario analysis, which is not totally anchored in numbers, it's not taken seriously. Do you ever think about this reverse stress testing, like regulators come up with a couple of scenarios and you show, oh, I met those scenarios, I'm still fine. But then maybe get to the next level and say, well, okay, what scenarios would actually break the bank and how can you protect against that? Do you think rating agencies, again, you work for one, generally speaking, not yours specifically, or even regulators ask those kinds of questions? or can hold the banks accountable for answering it. Can there be answers from that, that good outcomes that the institution now looks at things and says, well, okay, this is all great, I can pass those tests, but actually this is the one I should really be losing sleep over. Like for example, tomorrow, Deutsche Bank is hacked and everything shuts down in the institution. What happens to show me I'm the regulator show me that you'll actually, it doesn't matter, you'll be just fine. All the lights, the computers, everything just shut down, they can't get access to the account, it's 12.01. How are you gonna ensure that by 12.05, everything is gonna be fine? That's a question which is being asked, and obviously supervisors keep asking these questions to the banks. The, the problem is that, and the answer is that, well, we only have backup systems, right? So everybody has backup system. The problem is that the supervisors, I mean, if you are a smart, cybersecurity expert, top expert, are you going to shift your career into becoming a bank supervisor? No. So the problem with bank supervisors is they don't understand all these new developments. And I'm not talking about cyber risk. I'm talking about technology in general. Banks are becoming more technology players or should become more technology players. Although I still have yet to see ex-technology expert becoming bank CEO. That's didn't happen yet. Maybe it will happen at some point in the future. I learned a new acronym that doesn't, I thought CIO stood for chief investment officer. Now I'm being told as chief information officer. It depends on the organization. Yeah, chief information officer, CTO, chief technology officer. Absolutely, yeah. Here in the States, we have the Basel 3N game. The right. response to not what happened in March so much as just a further thoughts on the financial crisis. As you said, we're still fighting the last war. But in terms of what regulators can actually get banks to do, I can't really get you to invest in this technology or that technology, but I can make you hold more capital. Is holding more capital a real panacea for all the things that you worry about? Well, of course not. You saw it last spring. Credit Suisse has a very respectable ET1 ratio and it tanked. It didn't tank because of capital. Again, this is last war's battles because, you know, during the GFC, increased 
asset quality problems, high loan loss provisions, capital, which was at the borderline of the then criteria for Basel I, collapsed. Remember RBS or others in Europe at the time, RBS with a 4% tier one in general. So capital is now several times higher by multiple than it was 15 years ago. It's sufficient. You mentioned the US, in Europe also, you had last summer a stress test run for all major European banks, no outlier, very few outliers, but not by much. And with the stress test scenarios more severe than the previous stress tests. So no, I don't think capital is panacea. You know, if you talk to academics, they'll tell you banks don't have enough capital. They should 30%, 40% core tier one. Totally disagree. I mean, in your, in your class, maybe, yeah, that would be an ideal case. But in the real world, how are you going to remunerate 40% CT1? It's impossible. You are not going to resist. Well, I still, I do remember when I was following uh, RG Banks, there was this bank, Banco Hipotecario, and they impressed me with 35% equity assets on their balance sheet. And I thought, wow, that, that seems like a pretty fortress type balance sheet. And they yeah. still failed just as much as everybody else did. Exactly, exactly. So capital doesn't save me what about liquidity so another big takeaway right we're going to have more liquidity on the balance sheet than we used to have but again look at the credit suisse credit suisse had liquidity coverage ratio on lcr of 180 percent and when people started to move out the lcr moved below 130 which is the mm -hmm. regulatory floor very fast and that's what triggered the panic in mid-march so you have a great ratio it goes away. Do you think that things like the LCR are outdated? Like it's a 30 day run. We just saw a one day run. Yeah, I mean, you have now the social media runs, the digital runs, LCR and the net stable funding ratio were created at the beginning of the digital age when digital didn't count a lot in bank as much as it counts now. Super regulators didn't focus on that at the time at all. So absolutely, I think all these prudential metrics should be reassessed in the new ecosystem of digitalization and instant payments. Instant payments is another frontier which is going to come in banking. And that's something which I'm not sure that banks are prepared for. Well, here in the States, we have Fed now, we have Zelle, we have Venmo, which is not exactly instant payment, but sort of like that. But what I've heard, at least for Fed now, was that the take up so far has been relatively slow. It's not as yeah. robust. And part of the reason for that, from what I hear, is that demand is not really there yet for this. But Fed now just came into being a few months ago. In July. But you know, you'd think, well, there was such a demand for this. And now you're providing it through the Federal Reserve, it should be just a real take up. But we already have a lot of different ways of making payments today, more than we probably need. So liquidity doesn't really help. I mean, I could have well, all the liquidity, helps. I could have all the capital, these kinds of tools that bank supervisors would historically ask banks to do to respond. Well, these to are problems. good tools. I mean, if a bank doesn't have the capital, doesn't have the liquidity, cannot function. But capital liquidity according to old outdated metrics, not capital liquidity according to the new metrics. I would say capital is fine. I, I'm not sure what metrics you can have on capital 
for the digital age because capital erodes longer term. Liquidity can disappear overnight, basically. So I think the main focus in the digital age should be on funding and liquidity, okay. not so much on capital. And there's another thing that after the GFC, if you remember, the main funding problem during that crisis was the wholesale fund which collapsed for banks. This time, it's not a wholesale fund. The institutional investors continue to be there, just, you know, you charge more for the bonds. It's the non-insured, non-institutional investors, the depositors, walked away, and they can walk away. Do you have a concept in Europe, like we do here, called a core deposit? Well, analysts use the term core deposits because, you know, it's a U.S. term and a lot of analysts have the U.S. background in analyzing banks. Well, it's a regulatory term, too. Yeah, it's not something which, you know, you have retail deposits, you have SME deposits, mm -hmm. insured deposits. You don't even have proper disclosure on the total amount of insured deposits versus non-insured. Well, we something have that here in the States. Now, I think that they're going to come. I think the disclosure on funding on deposits in the U.S. is miles ahead of Europe. Yeah. And yet inadequate to the task of identifying the risk with Silicon Valley. So I just did a panel discussion just recently for the CFA. One of the recommendations that came out was that banks need to list their top 10 depositors like they list their top 10 borrowers. Now, I yeah. said, well, I don't think they actually list the names, but they might list the industries. But do you think that's even something that's reasonable and possible to see with banks? Well, I remember when I was in ratings, one of the key questions for a bank would be, give us a list with your top 10 exposures and top 10 depositors. But these top 10 depositors were institutional depositors. We had that. But it's not public information. Right. Some banks would say, we give you the amount, but we cannot give you the name, which is fair. Do you think more of these kinds of disclosures are coming? You have this disclosure on the credit side, on the lending right. side, but much less so on the deposit side. And I think that's, you're quite right. That's quite a good disclosure to have. Absolutely. Right. Do you think that that's realistic that we'll ever see something like that? Should be. Yeah, it should be. Interest rate risk disclosures, for example, you know, every bank has that up down 100 basis point thing in their 10Ks or their equivalent filings in Europe, but that doesn't really help you because it's not comparable necessarily in charts and things like that. But I'll ask you this, you know, one of the things I've discovered is that banking is a lot more complicated than the financial statements that we have that disclose that. So we summarize, we look from a 40,000 foot perspective at a bank's balance sheet. You know, think about the bonds in a securities portfolio. They're individual securities with their individual prepayment risks or other profiles of those loans that I will never be able to see and, and money going in and out every single day. I'm wondering whether or not the information of banking has become so complicated that it's not just the outsider can't see it, can the insider see it? Because I guess this is the thing that really bothers me the most about March, was that on the day that Signature Bank died, none of these people saw it coming until it was too late. How do you, as an analyst, as, as somebody who's looked at the industries for so long, how do you have any comfort at all in reading any of this information and spending a lot of time on what gets disclosed or what gets reported to you 
because nothing here is adequate. Yeah, I think that it's not very different from the past. The difference in the past is that people have a much higher tolerance for opacity. So they say, well, the bank is not a market. You cannot mark the market. The bank, the bank is for the long term. The accounting was not very helpful. If you remember, the pre-IFRS accounting was totally opaque, at least in Europe. And now everybody, investors, analysts, other market observers have very little tolerance for opacity. So they want to know everything. Mm-hmm. And they have the systems and they want the data and they have the technology to comb through all this data and to see what exactly is going on in the bank. And I quite agree with you. You cannot have this. Maybe artificial intelligence at some point will be able to combine all this data and to create some ratings or you know assessments for the future. But right now, the analysts still have to analyze banks which evolve in a totally new technology environment using the old tools. So it's not only people running banks using the old tools, but people analyzing banks using the old tools. I think I'm going to have to do one of these again with you because there's so much more that I think we could talk about. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. If you're looking for anything that Sam is writing, you can go to Sam's website, Scope. And I put all my reports on LinkedIn, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Very good. Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, everybody.